Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco Business. My guest today is Jenny Passavant. Jenny's a fashion designer and co-owner of the fresh-cut flower shop Bloom, situated at the corner of 11th and Franklin in downtown Waco. We talk about her experience working with manufacturers overseas for Ralph Lauren, and how she decided to turn her floral hobby into a business. But before that interview, let's check in with the word on the street. I'm now joined in studio by Megan Davis. Megan is the Program Manager of Community Engagement for Waco Parks and Recreation. Welcome to Downtown Depot. Thank you, Austin. I appreciate you having us this morning. I want to get into Brazos Nights, what it has been, what it's going to be here on July 4th. But I know we've had some reshuffling in the Parks and Recreation Department. Tell me about what that has resulted for you and what the structure is now. Yeah, absolutely. So in uh, the last couple of years, I've been promoted to the Program Manager of Community Engagement which oversees our marketing communications area and our park rangers and then our community engagement. So that has since moved our director, Jonathan, or when he was in this position, moved him up to our director. So we've had some organizational changes. They have been awesome, but we've got a great team. Uh, we just welcomed aboard Cameron Wolf. He's our new events and marketing, marketing promoter. So he has got a heavy hand in the events that we produce and getting him all settled in and ready for our biggest one of the year, fourth on the Brazos. So the Brazos Nights concert series is put on by Waco Parks and Rec. It happens every summer, typically three or four concerts, all of varying genres. So Robert Earl Keane was in town last week. He was. And boy, did we have folks from Waco show out. I say Waco, but goodness, people were coming from across the state to see him on his farewell tour. Uh, it was an awesome experience to have him have Waco be part of the tour. And um, we, we were the only free uh, concert on his bill. So quite exciting. We figured we had about 5,000 people out. A very good night for downtown Waco. I mean, the restaurants had folks visiting. Our, you know, all of the merchants and vendors downtown saw folks. It was just a really fun night to have to host him here in Waco. There's such great economic impact when the city puts its resources together to put on an event like that because all of the surrounding businesses benefit. Absolutely. And, you know, I saw uh, I was trying to get some hotel rooms as we have the artists stay close to the venue and noticed that a lot of them were booked up. So talk about, you know, heads and beds and economic impact. Uh, these types of activities, um, along with other activities that that come to Waco, really put folks in the downtown area and really across Waco in general. So it's it's pretty it's, it's a fun and exciting time right now for us. What's the history of Brazos Nights? So Brazos Nights dates back to about 1987, so that puts about 35 years. Um, it started out as a weekly event, and then it evolved into, well, that's a little much. Uh, went to a couple times during the summer, and then about 20 years ago when Jonathan started, we took it to a monthly format with an April, May, June show, and then ended with our July 4th, 4th on the Brazos event. So we've stayed pretty standard to that, one, one concert a month, and then ending with our 4th on the Brazos celebration. I live downtown and was traveling last week, and so I wasn't able to go to Brazos Nights. It was the first one I missed. But 
from sitting in my courtyard, I could perfectly hear Robert Earl Keane. It's it's such a gift for anyone who lives in downtown and the surrounding areas. I agree. I had to run over to the Marriott, and it did. It just it bounces off the different structures and the the buildings downtown. You can really hear it from not just in, within the interior of the event, but all surrounding areas. So it's a good location. Even though not everyone gets to live downtown like me, certainly for this fourth on the Brazos, you are going to hear and see <laughs> some of the outsized impact of the music from the Commodores and the fireworks display that's going to happen. What are the details? And also the Commodores, like funk, Motown, legends. That seemed like an incredible pull to me. It's a great pull. Uh, Jonathan was able to route them um, on a, uh, just able to route them to get them here to Waco. And it is, I mean, like we look around and who doesn't know the song Brick House? I mean, like everyone's going to be dancing. So this is quite an exciting time for us. Uh, Yes, it's going to be Monday, July 4th. We open the gates at 6 p.m. Come down early, stake your claim there at Touchdown Alley. And then uh, music starts at 6.30 with a DJ. And then we go into the Commodores about 8, 8.15. They'll play until we lead into our firework program at 9.15. With our, we have a patriotic ceremony with the Waco Community Band. And then, yes, the fireworks will go off about 9.15, 9.20. So uh, we're excited. Brazos Nights has become such a staple of the Waco social calendar. I would imagine that planning starts right after the last Brazos Nights begins. What is the process like in the internal lift required from Waco Parks and Rec to put on an event of this scale? Yeah, Austin, well, you mentioned Waco Parks and Rec, and we do, you know, we do the booking of the bands, we do the logistics, but I'll tell you, it's a City of Waco team effort. We have everyone's involvement. I think we have 100 Waco PD officers out at Fourth on the Brazos. We've got our traffic services, our emergency management. So kudos to our city team who helps produce this. But yes, once we close down July 4th, we allow ourselves about a week, and we're right back into planning. So not a lot of downtime, but it's a fun it's a fun process. I love how diverse and intentional the booking is for these events for Brazos Nights. It's not just the same beer-drinking, burger-eating <laughs> kind of folks on stage. There was Jimmy Ray Vaughn, or Jimmy Vaughn, excuse mm-hmm. me, Stevie Ray Vaughn's brother, and we had a Tejano band come in. What is the thought process for you guys as you're planning out an event, how you can create something that is attractive to all people in Waco? Well, you hit it. Like, say, saying attractive to all in Waco, you know, we, we do. We are very intentional with our bookings. We want people to be able to see and experience different types of music, different types of artists. So we look at what, what Waco has currently, and we kind of build our bill off of what we're not going to see during the year. I mean, we have some great venues around town that have music and provide entertainment for the citizens, or our citizens and our folks, but we really do. We are very intentional because we want people to experience new things. And this year, you know, we've had a really solid year with the artists that we've brought. You know, the Commodores being the last show, we've had a tremendous response from across the city. Folks are just really excited. So it is definitely, it's my baby. I love Brazos Nights. It's kind of what, it's my favorite part of the job. And uh, yeah, we, we want to reach every part of our community. And this concert series, it is for families, it's for kids, it's not just for a certain stripe of person. And throughout the year, Waco Parks and Rec is putting on things like go through Cameron Park with a park ranger or after school programs you guys put on. There's so much that the Parks Department has that is available for the community. You're exactly right. We have a lot of different programs. We have a a lot of different divisions within our department. You can go hiking with a ranger one day. You can go play at Cottonwood Creek Golf Course one day, Waco Mammoth National Monument, our athletics division, community centers, and then our outdoor events. You name it. We are busy, 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 but it's what we love to do. So we are absolutely everywhere you look. We may be mowing some grass along Park Roadway, but we are out there. 
Megan Davis is the Program Manager of Community Engagement for Waco Parks and Rec. Thank you so much for telling us a little bit about Brazos Nights and hope to see you on the 4th. Absolutely. Thank you, Austin. I'm now joined in studio by Jenny Passavant. Jenny is the co-founder and co-owner of Bloom, an amazing floral company in downtown Waco. Welcome to Downtown Depot. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You are one of those folks who grew up in the area, left, only Mm -hmm. to realize, oh, I really miss Central Texas. (laughs) I want to come back. Tell us a little bit about your history here in Central Texas Mm -hmm. and what led you to leave and come back. I grew up in China Spring and then graduated high school in 2008 from China Spring and then had always wanted to live in New York City. So I went to um, some summer programs at the Fashion Institute of Technology when I was 16 and 17 and then made the move up there at 18. Did the design program at FIT, graduated, started working, stayed in the city, and then having kids in the city with my husband, John, eventually it just felt kind of a little claustrophobic and hard to sustain. And so we started praying about other options. And then an amazing job in Waco came up for John and it felt like the right thing at the right time. And so we moved really quickly back here and have been really grateful for everything Waco has to offer young families. I feel like people who are in those major metro areas, especially New York and Boston, they're intentionally ambiguous about what they do or what their background Mm -hmm. is. So, for instance, if someone ever tells you, oh, I went to school in Boston, Mm -hmm. it means they went to Harvard, but they don't want to tell you they went to Harvard. Right. So when you're saying, oh, I went to FIT and I worked in New York, you're not saying, oh, I did denim for Ralph Lauren. Right. But that's what you were doing. Right. So so dig in a little bit to exactly your your work life in New York and the kind of success you were able to make there, even as a really young designer. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. So I had some incredible opportunities while I was at FIT to start interning at Ralph Lauren and in the industry of fashion, interning is really the best way into a real job. And so when I graduated, I just did a two-year program because I had a great opportunity to start working. And so why do school when you can get real experience? And so I got my associates when I was 20 and got a design job at Ralph. And that was an incredible six years of my life and loved everything that I got to learn and do there. I did denim, worked on several of the brands there, was involved with the opening of their huge flagship on Fifth Avenue, which they eventually closed down, actually, because it was massive. And I don't think they were selling very much, but got to do some amazing things and travel all over the world to factories, which was just an invaluable experience and time to go to countries that, you know, normal travel won't take you to and places that tourism never goes and see kind of the other side of manufacturing so I, I loved that experience and then was able to go from Ralph to some smaller companies and, and continue growing because Ralph is such a machine that, you know, you've got your fabric person, your wash person, your fit person. But when you go to a smaller company, you wear all of those hats. And so I was ready to put on some different hats. And since then, I've just kind of continued wearing a lot of design hats. And I've loved that side of it, too, because it's more challenging and it's more fun to be problem solving on all the fronts of uh, design. So, yeah. So you were spending time when you were in New York and what years would this have been? So I started at Ralph in 2010 and then we moved back in 2019 when I was six months pregnant with our third. And then we had her and then COVID hit just a couple months later. And we just were looking back at that, just so grateful that 
we left New York when we did and had a home and a job because so many of our friends were scrambling to get out of quarantine in such a busy city. So, Well, I know you still have relationships with Chinese manufacturers. You were on the phone with one of them late last night. Mm -hmm. And because you also had that experience a decade ago when Mm -hmm. you were in New York, is there anything different that's happening now in the manufacturing world, mm. particularly in terms of our relationship with China that mm-hmm. you've noticed? Oh, or yeah. like what what are your thoughts on like building in America versus outsourcing stuff to China? Oh, I love that we're going into this. Um Ooh, okay. Uh lots of beautiful things about developing overseas because they just have an incredible ability and they've developed an incredible ecosystem of manufacturing from fabrics to trims to hardware to Really, anything you want to make, you can make. And so as far as the quality of product goes, I think China's in a better place than it used to be 30 years ago when it was just maybe not the quality that people expected. But their manufacturing is incredible, especially when you're working with higher-end factories. There are certainly lower-end factories still. But you can get any fabric and make any type of garment, which is what East Asia specifically is providing, where... When you try to produce in America, you quickly become limited on what type of fabrics you can source domestically, what type of manufacturers you can find, and their sewing capabilities. So, for instance, the things that typically are more domestically made now are going to be your T-shirts out of L.A. It's like, okay, great, we can make T-shirts. woohoo! That's great, but it's not the full story. And then there's kind of those more rough wear fabrics like Carhartt pants, those type of fabrics. You can source those domestically or in Mexico. And then that's really easy to sew. And so there are manufacturers who can do those sort of straightforward canvas workwear styles. And then there is some denim, too, that's happening in L.A., but it's really expensive and The quality actually sometimes is a little frustratingly not as good as overseas because you're like, this is America. Why is this not good? We're paying more for it. It's more difficult to make. And I mean, ultimately, it's three or four times more. But then the stitching's coming undone. Oh, our machines are older. Oh, we haven't actually been keeping up to par with what the rest of the world is doing. We've just been outsourcing, not growing our own ability to manufacture and sewing and machinery. So it's pretty hard to find, in my opinion, manufacturers domestically that are really like top of the game worldwide. We've seen this in the space program where the United States basically said, hey, we're going to outsource our space program to Tesla Mm -hmm. or to SpaceX rather, Mm -hmm. and we're going to privatize this industry. When I hear about manufacturing going over to China, my initial reaction is, all that should be happening here in the States. I want it to be American people Mm -hmm. working on this stuff. But it sounds like what you're saying is that having some of these things manufactured across the pond is actually providing a better customer experience for the American consumer. Well, I think the American consumer probably, at least right now, isn't up for the reality of what Made in America would look like. Just in terms of cost? cost and availability of what type of product they could get right now. Um, I think American manufacturing can grow, and I would love to see that happen. Um, But I think in order for that to happen, the American consumer would also have to really start seeing the value of paying a lot more for things that feel like they're the exact same quality, because our wages are higher. And the wages should be higher in China. That's the problem that I see is the human rights problem that Over time, I think uh, we're going to just see more and more happening with um, 
you know, maybe factory workers over time just rising up and saying we don't accept this anymore or we need higher wages or whatever that looks like. I don't know what that long game will be. But I think for American consumer mindset to shift, um, well, it's it's sort of, you know, stopping a, a boulder rolling down a mountain and trying to stop it and push it back up the mountain. It's it, it's an incredibly hard thing. And we've tried to do that at Ralph. There were so many Made in America initiatives that just didn't go anywhere because no one wants to pay that. You know, who really wants the label of like, oh, actually, I do want to pay $350 for this pair of pants that feels like a Carhartt. You know, it's it's a, it's a hard thing to convince people of. But um, over time, the decisions that are generations before us have made to manufacture overseas like this is kind of where we're at and I think it's going to take more of a global initiative to stop and change the um, the way it all happens right now globally I don't think it's just America can can stop it and change it I think I think it might even have to start from the ground level in East Asia um, to start demanding higher wages which will drive up prices and because as long as they're willing to work for lower wages, then factories are willing to sell cheaper garments, and Americans are always willing to spend less. And the West, I mean, it's not just America. It's really any first world country. We're always up for a deal, a bargain, and that's what that's what we're able to do right now. So I think in some ways I, I, I anticipate, gosh, this is getting kind of heady. Maybe not what you thought your interview was going to be about. I love it. This is a perspective that we've never had before on the show. Well, yeah, and I don't know how necessarily accurate it is, but I just think over time it may be a ground a ground level thing that makes some changes happen or um, certain laws that get passed for, because of human rights violations or things like that. Well, there's clearly a cultural reckoning happening everywhere, mm -hmm. and with China being a closed country, they don't have access to the free information that we mm -hmm. get here in the states. But these are the exact same conversations that Americans were having. 100, 120 years ago when we finally instituted an eight-hour workday and right. having worker protections. Right. And hopefully some of that does trickle down to these other companies yeah. or the other countries rather. And us as consumers can start to bite the bullet on paying a little bit more to these companies yeah. so that we can have products that are ethically manufactured. Yeah. I think anytime you can buy something that is made in a responsibly sourced way, it's worth it to do. The challenge is so many factories claim to be responsibly sourcing when it's really just, um, you know, a marketing ploy of like, oh, our factory is using some recycled uh, – we're recycling our water and not putting stuff into the environment, but the people are still treated the same. So anyways, there's so much to – there's there's so much to kind of dive into and, and very honestly so little that I ultimately know compared to what's happening globally, but um, – yeah, manufacturing in China is quite a beast. You're hearing from Jenny Passavent. Jenny was formerly in the fashion space in New York. She moved here in 2019 and recently started Bloom, a really incredible floral company Thank that's you. next to Milo across the street from Balcones there at Franklin and 11th. You obviously have always had a, a flair for design. How did the idea of Bloom, which is just you love cut flowers, I like having cut flowers in my home. Mm -hmm. Here, let's go ahead and make a business out of yeah. it. I'm always interested in that inflection point of when do you decide to take something from yeah. a business and make it more of a commercial pursuit? What did that look like for your partner and you? So we had I had the idea of um, having a 
kind of fresh take on flowers when I first moved here from New York because I would always stop and get flowers at farmer's markets or the bodega on the way home. Um, it was just such an obvious part of living to me. It was like, oh, yeah, well, of course I'm going to have flowers. And then moving here, there was nowhere to get just an easy, quick, beautiful bouquet. Um, H-E-B had their selection, but it's not always kind of the um, the type of flowers that I was looking for. Wolves had great stuff, but then you're paying a lot of money for a whole dozen of something when I just wanted a few or whatever. So, but yeah, we, I had the idea. And then when COVID hit, I was laid off from my design job based out of Nashville. My business partner, Lindsay, who's my childhood best friend, um, she had moved here shortly after I did in 2019. And we were sort of kicking around that idea in 2019. But she was, I was like, Lindsay, this is your thing. You got to, this is going to be your thing. Uh, you do it. And she was like, I need to make, I need a job. I have to make some money. I have to provide for myself. So um, that idea was kind of put on hold. But then she was furloughed at the beginning of COVID. I was laid off. And so the idea sort of came back around of like, hey, both of us have a little more time professionally than we did six months ago. And um, what would it look like for us to kind of just kick this off at the farmer's market? Uh, the farmer's market is a beautiful place to launch something like this because it is a great space to test an idea a great space for marketing, and the booth fee is very low. So the entry point is accessible for anyone to just say, I have an idea, I want to launch something, uh, especially, I mean, their requirements are that it's uh, sourced locally. So we were doing that um, to a large degree with some some local growers. Um, so we just kind of started it off that way. And the idea got enough steam that it felt like, okay, we can – we can uh, get a little storefront and let's just do this. And honestly, it was happening out of my living room. There would be buckets and buckets of flowers every Thursday. And that was like, whoop, this isn't working. Let's get a space ASAP. And that's kind of where, where it all started. And then it's just grown uh, month over month, little by little, season over season growing. And we're amazed to see kind of where it's at. And in some ways we're like, how have we, how have we gotten it this far? We don't even really know what we're doing as far as growing a business. We feel, we feel pretty confident now on the flower side that we know how to make beautiful arrangements and do events. And that's been really fun to um, grow our expertise there. But yeah, it's cool to see. And we're always as business owners um, evolving and figuring out how to get to the next step and you know, each new season has its own challenges. And so you're always kind of on a learning curve as a business owner, which is a good thing and a hard thing. But I love the visual of flowers just popping out of every window of your living room because you're running out of space for it. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And that reminds me of similar stories that have been told on here. Hunter Harlow from mm -hmm. Sendera Provisions Company, Mackenzie Assisi from Milk Bottle Cookies, where they weren't really planning on starting a business. Mm -hmm. They just loved doing this thing. And then all of a sudden, Hunter is putting out 500 packages on his front porch for the UPS guy to deliver it's and amazing. realizes, okay, maybe Sendero really needs some warehouse space. Yeah, yeah. Like, the market sort of compels yeah. you to take that next step in your business. Mm -hmm. So you start doing it at your home. You're having great success at the farmer's market. You're providing a type of floral engagement that other people aren't offering here. And then you have the big scary question of do we sign a lease mm -hmm. on a commercial storefront? Mm -hmm. Thankfully, your husband, John Passavent, he runs Startup Waco. So you've got great counsel at your mm -hmm. side. But ultimately, that's your partner in you. That's Lindsay and you who yeah. are 
on that dotted line. So what were you thinking in terms of finding a location and what has been the result of you guys having a storefront? What can you do now with the business that Mm -hmm. you weren't able to do before? Mm -hmm. So our first store was on um, Washington and 12th, kind of that little old uh, Wilkerson Hatch building. And that was a great space to start because it was pretty affordable. And we were just able to be open during the week. That's kind of what that afforded. And then after about eight months of that, I think, we moved over to the My- the Bloom store now, which is on 11th and Franklin next to Milo. And that has been just a lot more foot traffic and visibility. So in making that jump, we um, just sort of increased our marketing potential there. Um, and then we also have been able to host a few events and private workshops um, because there's a little more space to set people up with their stations. And but yeah, it was it's all a risk every step you take. But we feel good about the each risk that we've taken up until now, and um, it's definitely grown us. So practically, what are things that you're able to do now that you weren't able to do when you were on Washington? How has the business changed now mm-hmm. that you're? I mean, you're in a more high visibility place Mm -hmm. because you're right there on Franklin. Mm -hmm. You are across from Balcones Mm -hmm. and Milo, which are two of the places that almost everybody wants to visit when they come through Waco. So I would Mm -hmm. imagine you have a lot more foot traffic in your current area. Yes, we do. A lot more foot traffic, which was really the main reason we moved over because we were pretty lost in the other spot. But yeah, we're able to expand our merchandise and our kind of store offering. So because there's more shelf space, we now have linens. And we're, we sort of think of Bloom like you're you're buying a gift or you're going to a dinner party or you're hosting a dinner party. This is the place you can come to get your flowers, your vase, some candles, some napkins. Um, and we're still exploring what other products we could expand into um, to offer along with that mindset. But, yeah, we've got more foot traffic. We're able to do some private events and really just have a little more space to grow our own offering. You got out of that big, scary rat race of New York City mm-hmm. and came back to Waco. I would imagine you have some more semblance of a work family life. And mm-hmm. uh, the pace of here, of course, mm-hmm. is, is a lot slower than it yeah. was when you were living in New York. Yeah. When you think back to your last three or so years in Waco, and obviously a lot of this has been tinged by COVID and mm-hmm. being relegated to inside your home for mm-hmm. a while. But what were some things that maybe you didn't expect about your Waco experience having mm-hmm. left here in 2011 that mm-hmm. have really been blessings and beneficial for yeah. you guys? I would say the people. We've just met some amazing people and friends that moving, we had a, a very close-knit community in New York of creatives, of inspiring friends that we are still very close with. But coming back to Waco, I just didn't know what type of people we'd find here and what that would look like to have a community of um just hearts and minds that are on the same page about things. And we sort of instantly found that through our neighbors and the the community that sort of came from, from that. So even in COVID, we were meeting our neighbors across the street and down the road. And uh, your sister's one of them, you know, just people that sort of came out of the woodworks that have become our closest friends here. And we just wouldn't have the same experience in Waco without them. So that's been, I think, the biggest, one of the biggest blessings and being near my family. That, you know, support of grandparents is huge. Y'all live in the uptown area. It seems like that has been an intentional choice for you and this group of friends. Mm-hmm. Everybody's on Austin or mm-hmm. Washington. You can go to Pinewood. Yeah, we love it. 
Is that something that you guys looked at when you came here was where is a community that we can get plugged into just in terms of what the neighborhood has to offer? Yeah, we did like that area when we were first moving here and we're renting and that was one of the few houses for rent on the market. There were some woodway options and there was this and we were like, well, obviously we're going to take this one and it's been the best fit for us. We just love it and have stayed because it's a great place, not because we have to, but we just have loved that space. Yeah, the uptown area with everything you can sort of walk to right there has been an amazing spot to land in. So what's your pitch for New Yorkers and other people why they need to come to Waco and start a business? Oh, goodness. You can actually start a business. That's one. It's so crowded in in the city to start anything. And when you move to a city Waco size where there is a lot of growth and a lot of potential and you have an idea, you can do it. And you're not crowded out by a million other ideas. But the rent is cheap enough on a space that you can really launch something. There's not that many brand new things happening. So everyone's excited about a new company or a new store. So it is a great and friendly place to start a business. Ginny Passavant is the co-founder and co-owner of Bloom there on Franklin Avenue and 11th. Thank you so much for coming on Downtown Depot and sharing your story. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks again to Ginny Passavant of Bloom, Megan Davis of Waco Parks and Rec, and you for tuning in to episode 130 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio. I'll be back on the third Friday of July featuring another inspiring small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen sparking Waco's renaissance. But you can find me in between episodes on social media at Waco Business News. I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you've been listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business.